when you start giving God permission to work and you are you're disposing yourself right worthily right you're the sacraments all of this stuff you're drinking it all in and then when God manifests his grace and his power through you it becomes like this crazy unexplainable memorable event Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. This is Mike Gomer Gormley, and we are now in episode, or not episode, but part two uh, of our two-part episode with Dr. Matthew Minard. Dr. Matthew Minard is uh, raised Catholic, but he has gone East, right? You you have raised Roman Catholic, now Catholic. How funny that I made that mistake. I literally correct people all the time, and I just made that mistake. Raise Roman yeah, raised Roman Catholic, now a member of the Ruthenian Catholic Church in union with the Pope of Rome, as we said. Yes, yes. How long has the Ruthenian Catholic Church been in union with Rome? What about four, about four hundred years? I should know. I should know the exact date of our union, but yeah. Mm. I I love loves. It, so I took an ecumenism class at Franciscan, in, in a graduate level, and <laughs> typically in ecumenism class, you spend ten percent of the time on the East. And then you spend 90% of the time on the West, meaning Protestantism and all the different ecumenism movements with Protestantism. And all of us in the class, we flipped it. And the professor was like, we really need to move on. We really need to move on. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's learn more about the Assyrian Church of the East. And let's learn more about all this stuff. And it was so funny because when I, after that class, I got married. I had a job uh, running RCIA, and this woman goes, who I was taking over, she goes, figure this case out. This is the one that stumped the archdiocese. What do we do with this person? And I looked at it, and I go, oh, he's from the, uh, the Assyrian Church of the East. Cool. He'll become uh, Chaldean Catholic. And she looked at me, and she was like, I'm so mad. That took the archdiocese four weeks to figure out. How did you know that? And I was like, well, they, their, their church is not of the West. So if they were like a Protestant church, they would convert to Roman Catholicism, but they're not. They would convert to their corresponding Eastern church. And she was like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> she just left. Yeah, so it's like people who live outside of like the Rust Belt. They don't really, you know, they don't have a good sense that the East really has a footprint. So, yeah. but yeah, so Ruthenian, Ruthenian Catholic, I should say it's like 350 years, but I should, I need to. I, right now, at this moment, for whatever reason, the, the date of the Union of Brecht is not. not it, it's funny that that's like the question I lead off with. Give me the exact number. Yeah, and I'm not good for that. I, I tell people in, in class, like Father Shawl, who taught, he was a Jesuit who taught down in Georgetown, but a real solid and faithful guy. He used to love to make people memorize dates. I'm like, here, this guy comes before that guy, so you can understand <laughs> the, their ideas, but that's it. Like, I just yeah. am not a. Nice, nice. Well, you wrote this wonderful book, Made by God, Made for God, Catholic Morality Explained. It's published by our uh, fine friends here at Ascension Press. It is going to be a textbook that I use next year for my morality class that I'll be teaching. I'm super excited about it. But in this book, you kind of lay out the grand foundations of Christian morality. And it doesn't start with do's and don'ts. It starts with the God of the universe. It starts with God who made us, who loved us into being. And what does that mean to be made for God? I think we all can understand it to a certain extent made by God and the mystery of creation, creator and all that, but to being made for God. And that's what the last episode was talking about. But now I want to talk about what does it mean 
So if we have these Christological foundations, if I'm going to an atheist, if I'm going to a lapsed Catholic, if I'm going to, you know, a new ager and I'm calling them out of sin and darkness and into a relationship with God, real things about their lives have to change, right? Part of conversion is not just an adoption of a new set of beliefs to replace an old set of beliefs, but a new way of being in the world, right? Action flows from our being. And so the difficulty, though, for people who evangelize is you have these twin kind of problems. One is I hide behind the kerygma so that I don't have to bring up sticky moral issues where there'll be you know, things fall apart. Father Livio Molina talks about that in his wonderful book, Sharing in the Virtues of Christ, where he says that there are preachers who hide behind the kerygma. And I can tell you, there are times where I I really want to do that, but I know that the kerygma calls people into repentance and I can't hide behind that and not address individual things. But then the other thing is where we you hijack the kerygma to moralize right? Where we just want to beat people over the head with how wrong they are in their political views or abortion views or whatever. And I've seen both in action just leave a wake of death. So what I want to do is tie evangelization into the Christian moral living because they're not separate. Just like the liturgy and the moral life isn't separate, you know, uh, the the law of prayer is the law of belief, but also what, what was that great phrase, your throw a, throwaway line? Oh, yeah. The, the true, yeah, throwaway. Yeah. Except it's like the <laughs> central to my soul. Uh, I did. It felt like a throwaway. Just listen to the end. Listen to the last episode and buy my book. But uh, no, the <laughs> truths of faith, I, I'm buying time to make sure I get it right. Uh, but the, tr- the truths of faith are the truths of our lives. Like yes. they all like it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, there's the Trinity, there's Christ, there's Christ who then converts someone, you know, right. But then it's, and then follow me, but it's the end. Follow me is just this overflow of the mystery of who he is. Now it has to be the, the the likeness that was in kind of an Eastern approach of talking about morals. The likeness that had been stained by the fall now has to get reworked in you. Uh, and that's going to that demand something. It isn't just kind of like we were focusing more on the, the high lofty side of this. But now it gets into the nitty gritty because yeah. the kerygma is about the you know reformation of us in Christ. Yeah. So the truths of faith are the truths of our life. So like the truths of faith aren't just abstract things you say in the creed. They should transform who you are. Everything down to your toenails, as Father Ambrose Garday says somewhere, down to your toenails. <laughs> I mean, like, all of it, all your relations, everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I think the hinge is the theological virtues, right? Is how do I get the Christological life into my life? Obviously, we talked about the sacraments and the liturgy in the last episode, but now it's uh, my my active participation, right? We even use liturgical language talking about it in living the divine life as the Christian life, right? So, what is faith? If I can't be saved with it, what is faith? Yeah, so I mean, faith is the is the beginning of salvation, but we need the rest of the theological virtues. But you know, grace when when we receive sanctifying grace, it flows through the heights of who we are as beings. Like we believe as Christians, we are spiritual beings. We're spiritual embodied beings. And we should never forget the second half. But the heights of who we are in our minds, the heights of our minds, the apex mentis, Augustine, right? Um is is our spiritual ability to know and to love, intellect and will, as some of the scholastics would talk about. And faith is often thought of on a kind of uh you know Protestant model of trust. 
kind of trust in God who saves us and offered himself for us, right? There's a sense in which that's actually closer to theological hope, as we'll see in a minute. Mm. But by faith, our minds are enabled to grasp the mysteries of God. And it's, you know, without that, without that, you can't talk about the other two virtues, which are in a sense more important, hope and charity, hope and love. But by faith, as the Christian uh, East, and I'm, I bet, I mean, you find this peppered, I'm sure it's peppered the same language throughout the Western Fathers too, speaks of illumination. Not like mystical, not mystery knowledge, although we are all called to be mystics. Because every time you pray the creed, you know, you aren't just saying as a human, I believe because someone told me God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're enabled to just delve deeply into that mystery of the triune God who worked his supernatural life through all of creation. Like, so when you read the scriptures, you're enabled to read in the history of Israel the supernatural God present in the history of salvation. You are able to, you know, when you affirm that the Eucharist is the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, you're not merely just like saying it on human faith because my parents told me or my preachers told me. You know, you the mystic, this is why like, um, you know, adoration in the West is such a beautiful thing. The mystic learns to sit with how the Eucharist is this central, you know, reflashing of the offering of Calvary and the, vic- and the victorious Christ now present to us here today. And to know that, but obscurely. So it's obscure knowledge of the mysteries of God, a kind of, as, as a certain mystic has said, a sort of spiritual mouth on which we then feed ourselves for the rest of the divine life. Mm. That's intense because when you reduce faith, and I, I like how you said that because it is a form, when you say trust and you look up the catechism of hope, it's you, you're trusting in the promises of God. Right. That's what hope is in its essence. And even to, here's a phrase that I love actually from I think I took this from Garagu. Hope enables you to trust in the divine redemptive omnipotence. I know that sounds like technical. It you are enabled to believe God God can refashion you and is refashioning you through his grace if you don't get in the way. And you live according to that. Like it it's you know, you what is that um it's a, a bluegrass song, um, you know, hold to God's unchanging hand. I mean, it's, you know, it could sound hokey to someone who's a snob, but actually if you listen to it and think of it as a kind of Protestant articulation of trust, I mean, the way they talks about like place your hope, not in things temporal, but in he, you know, not just the eternal promise of, of life after this life, but that he's in breaking that life right now. That kind of trust is hope. Yeah. Yeah. So you are translating Right, a bunch of works of Father Garigou Lagrange. weren't you? weren't you working on? Yeah, a lot of stuff. I've been doing a lot. Yeah, yeah. You're like the guy. You're the guy, which is so awesome, because um, I've just started to get into some of his theology and really trying to understand. Like he had um, the book on. Um, oh gosh, what was it? The Christian Perfection. Um, well, is it? Are you talking about Three Ages? The two volume. Yes. For Christian. Yeah. 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 Three Ages. This is basically his spiritual theology course. He taught at the Angelicum last century, and it's based on his spiritual theology course. Yeah, he he's just so awesome. And, and th- there are some people in the Thomistic tradition that when you start to read them, Thomas becomes alive. And there are some people, when I get a hold of their books, you read them, everything just feels like this giant shopping list of dead letters. You know, you're like, yeah. oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, the, the sawdust Thomism of, yeah. of the French Jesuits that um, – 
what's his name, uh, Hansers von Balthasar complained about, mm-hmm. or the German Jesuits or whatever. Um, but when you read some of these people, um, like for me, I keep bringing up Father Survey Pinkares, but um, there are so many people that bring the theology and philosophy of St. Thomas alive. And for me, I, I was uh, one of the reasons why I love your book is because I was a senior at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I'm starting to write my double thesis, and I wanted to do it on morality, and it was for philosophy and theology. And I wanted to do it in morality, and I didn't know where to start. And I just started reading. for. I had to apply for three extensions because I was just reading everything I could get my hands on. And this crazy rabbit trail that I went on led me to a presentation of morality that I had never heard before, which is called Virtue Ethics. And then I reread the catechism, and I realized, oh, this is how the catechism presents ethics. And then I discovered Father Survey Pinkeris, and I realized, this is how St. Thomas Aquinas presents ethics. It's not just about law, the natural law. There's a place for it, a very prominent place for it, a very necessary, but it's not the whole of it. And for so, the divine law and the divine positive law and the, yeah. the, the law, you know, the, the, the law and precepts of the church and the precepts of, you know, sort of moral precepts taught by yeah. the tradition, all of that. But virtue is sort of the, the stru- structural principle that shows you, but this is because this is leading us to have the capacity to actually ourselves, in a sense, inventively be loving, mm. right? To, to inventively have the spillover of the last theological virtue we need to make sure we do before we Oh, do yeah, sure. I was just thinking that. I was like, oh, yeah, charity. charity. Charity, the divine love, which by a kind of heart transplant has been placed within us too, that we can make that divine love, placing God first, and then everything else is kind of ordered in that view. It's not as though yeah. we like love God and then like everything else is gone, right? God, God loves himself infinitely and on account of that own self-love in that sense, that, but yeah. it's not negative self-love. I mean, it's the, the divine appreciation and rest in the divine goodness. He then also, his salvific love is nothing more than like an overflow of that so that we can participate in it too. We get to do that too. And then so the moral virtues are just the way that like we're complex beings, right? We're not simple like God. We're not just immaterial like angels. So like everything has to get trans- transformed. And that's what the moral virtues. Um, and I generally am actually presenting the moral virtues as what the Thomas would call the infused moral virtues. But let's just call it Christian moral virtue. Like what does moral virtue look like for Christians? Mm-hmm. There is natural virtue. Philosophers can talk about the natural law. But there's more than the natural law because charity elevates us to to a kind of, you know, justice that's beyond the justice of, of tit for tat um, and et cetera. Yeah. It's interesting because in Catholic circles, there are these funny debates that happen that happen like after they've already happened in the Protestant world. Like we like rediscover these texts after everyone else. And we're like, oh, hey, do you guys ever think of this? And one <laughs> of them is the relationship between um, number one is the Sermon on the Mount and the Christian life. Is the Sermon on the Mount an ideal that we strive for? Is it what Christ commands of us all? Or is it just these impossible ideals that we'll never attain and that's why we need faith alone? And um, and then you have these, these funny distinctions that crop up within the moral life of, is there any such thing really as Christian morality? Isn't morality the same for everyone. And then there's just a little like Jesus-y like, hey, you get heaven if you do it really well. Like, and you hear these things, like the way the way it's kind of been filtered down to me is we've reduced in the West religion to just morality. But then we've done this bizarre thing where we take the Christian morality and we just reduce it to 
sheer obligation, sheer law, or whatever. And we lose, we've completely de-gospeled everything, right? And so the virtues are a way of recovering the interior beauty and dynamism and you know power of living the Christian life. So Thomas saw that. It was central for him, right? Uh, it's central for a lot. It's central for your book, right? To be a Christian, you have to do these virtues. So where is it? Why, why do you think there is this tendency in our culture to, I, I don't know, let, let me put it this way. What is so dadgum Christian about these virtues that Aristotle or Plato would have missed? Why these? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there is a way in which I've, I've had some Eastern folks critique me an email very gently, but saying that I'm too virtue ethics focused. That sounds too Aristotelian, right? Mm. But, you know, the language. So faith, hope and charity, actually, let's start there. Those okay. guys, that's nothing that could ever have been suspected. By the, by the philosophers at all, because really, like when you ask what is the object, like what is attained by faith, right? It's God known in his mystery. Mm -hmm. Like he illuminates our mind. We're all called to be mystics. It is, faith is like this little beginning of the light that will come to full light in the vision of God in the hereafter. And hope is like the striving of our will, not just for like making it through this life and not falling into sin, but for actually like being able to grasp through our particular vocation, that good which is going to be our good for all eternity, but already starting to grasp it now, yeah. but to be able to hold fast to it while we are wayfarers, pilgrims. And then charity is really just the exact same love that we're going to have in heaven. And it's like the love of the Trinity given to us by way of participation. That stuff's way beyond the moral virtues, right? Yeah. But then, you know, I, I take the framework. Like St. Thomas says, look, a kind of framework of virtues that's pretty broadly taken up in the in the Hellenized world of, of prudence, which we might call Christian conscience, um, justice, courage, and temperance. Th this framework really gives us a, at least a scaffolding for trying to understand the phenomenon, the like what the phenomena, the experience of the moral life. Yeah. But justice, of course, you know, for, for, for Aristotle has even an idea of generosity and how that's a kind of justice, right? But Christ on the Sermon on the Mount is like, all right, one, you know, one cloak, give him your coat. One mile, do two. Um, you know, basically, you know, he asks you, he, you know, your, your brother asks you to, to or your brother is in need, completely self-offer yourself to, to uh, you know, to, to that which he needs. Um, you know, don't hold back. The, the impulse of love. And there your justice will be like your justice of your heavenly father. All of a sudden, the virtues are transfigured. So what I tried to do was, while still working within a, a generally Thomistic framework, I am an Eastern Catholic, but I mean, Thomas is, is first of all, a, a universal teacher of Christians, maybe not as, as central for Eastern Christians, and that's just different histories. But I'm also writing for a Western audience. I figure, well, let's take some of the virtues, but instead of they call, I'll be honest, some Thomists present the virtues and they sound like you're reading Aristotle. They sound like you're reading philosophy. Well, let's meditate by way of scripture on, you know, what would be like, so abortion. The question of abortion becomes like a natural law question. It's wrong yeah. to kill, right? Well, let's really think, what is the implication of, you know, the, the why don't we allow for the, the, the killing of uh, infants who are not merely you know, have their own human dignity, but they have the dignity of potentially being sons and daughters of, of God and living the divine life. You're like snuffing that out. In a sense, it makes the yeah. sin all the more clearly bad. Um, courage, right? Courage can be talked about like by a Greek as like go to battle. That's the best, 
right? Like the, the warrior who, who defends the city in a just war. You know, so it's like a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But for the Christian, martyrdom is is the, you know, the self-offering for God is the highest case of courage. You know, so let's reflect on that, you know. And once again, trying to be very scriptural with that. Um, so, you know, I try to you know, play out how if we talk in terms of virtue, still the new actions we are called to are all marked with this kind of cruciform suffering Christ, you know, yeah. uh, but also too with the immense love of Christ that takes him to the cross. But here below, all of our loves are marked by a kind of like seal of the cross. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a, a great line. I can't remember who said it, but they said, uh, you know, if Thomas blindly adopted Aristotle, then he never would have imported humility as a virtue. Humility from Aristotle would have been a vice. It would have been hated by the by the by the large the high souled man um, to think of him to reduce himself. Why should why should this person become the servant of all, the slave of all? You know, and that that doesn't make sense. Yeah, because it's like it's it's this strange turning on its head too. It's a moral system in which there's magnanimity, but it's the magnanimity of children of God's the high souled man, the big Greek man has now become the small child of God. Humility, it's like, I mean, Aristotle could say like, you know, maybe you don't be boastful or something like, because you need to know who you are in order to be like virtuous. Yeah. But it's not humility with that way of absolutely seeing your dependence in all things on on Christ, on, well, Christ and on God without whom you can do nothing. Yeah, that's why I have like, I actually set up one of the uh, connection chapters between the theological virtues and the moral virtues is on acedia and humility. Mm. These are like the two different atmospheres of the moral life. So acedia, which is a weird word, but it's a kind of you know lack of it's a lack of tone is how we can think of it. Sloth is what people say, but let's not say sloth because that's just like fat people eating Cheetos or something. You know what I mean? Like it just, that's what people. This are is thinking. the noonday devil. This is the noonday. Yeah, the devil. noonday devil, where like you you know the the stories the monks would tell. It's like the monk is is doing his you know making his baskets and praying the psalms, and then he's like. I'm just going to go check at the window what's going on. Like, I'm going to try and avoid living my vocation. Well, we also do this even as lay people. If we're not weaving baskets and praying the Psalms, we have all kinds of ways. It's like, what's on my wall on Facebook? Um, but also, too, like, we become – St. Thomas is brilliant. He, he, he classes acedia as a sin against charity. It's a, it's a sorrow in divine things. Yeah. Like, you avoid – in a sense, so like something I always share my own struggles. It's like it's very tempting in the morning. Like even if you you know pray as you're getting out of bed and you're kind of shuffling off to make your coffee, flip your phone open and look at the news headlines, right? And like you're kind of avoiding just you know your your morning meditation as you prep for praying like the liturgy of the hours, like I do in the morning. Um, it's a that's a kind of avoidance that marks a, a kind of sorrow of your soul. I don't want to just have the mysteries present to my soul. And humility is the on the positive side. Humility is like the other is the atmosphere that every Christian needs is the great, the great um, foundation stone of the edifice. Yeah, you know, and I think about in my own life, like this, this ties into the, the death and the hells that we are trying to free people from, is you know the ultimate hell, but the hells that people create for themselves as well, right? And we're calling them out of darkness. We want them to see this marvelous light. And for so many people, um, they, this, this acedia, right? Like how it infects the faithful uh, who are just so unaware. And like I myself, like I know that once I go easy on myself and I create a, 
let's say, uh, a too thick margin <laughs> for how quickly I'm going to start my morning prayer. One week later, I'm not praying in the morning. Like it just, it just, it, it is that it's a gentle slope that takes you down into the rut that you don't even realize you're in until you hit Lent and you're like, what the heck have I been doing? Like, what, how did I get this? Like, you don't even notice the fall, but then you look back and you're like, good Lord, how I've ignored all of these things. Then you rededicate and make yourself, it, it is, it it's is fascinating. Mercy of the church. It's like the great mercy of the church in her liturgical years to kind of like take the donuts away from us, right? Like, even <laughs> though it's like, you know, even though we should be practicing, we should be practicing this kind of detachment throughout the, the rest of the, the various sub-fasting portions of the year. It's different in the East and the West, you know. Um, but we can come up with this with other things, too. I mean, just, just with our awareness of our need, almsgiving and our needs of our brethren. Same kind of thing. Yeah. I forget there was something else. There's something along those lines I was going to say to try to connect something, but it's fine. I forgot it. <laughs> Welcome to my ADHD donuts lifestyle. My well, the donuts threw my brain away. So. <laughs> you need that sugar high. No, I and also with tying the proclamation of the gospel to people who don't believe like uh, one of the big things is for so many of us in our um, families, they've fallen away from faith. Right. And they view the church often as this moralizing judge condemning things. Most of it is a complete caricature because I haven't been to church where people are being moralizing at all. It's the exact opposite. It's the yeah. squishy. It's the practical universalism that uh, we talked about in a previous show. But how do we how do we overcome that? Like to me, the virtuous life, presenting the virtues is how is one of the ways we overcome a exaggerated legalism because it's about becoming a type of person. Right, it's not just about obedience, but I don't want to. I hate saying it's not just about obedience because I feel like I'm downgrading that. So here's, but this is how one thinks of it. So law, right? So think about how the treatise on law is laid out, like in the Summa Theologiae of Saint Thomas. I mean, he makes the point that okay, law is an external principle, mm -hmm. right? And it's, but it is the means by which God refashions us. So you know, why do we have, why do we have rules and customs in our society, at least ideally in a healthy society? It's because, I mean, Aristotle actually sees this very clearly in the Nicomachean Ethics. He says, you, because you need a political order in order to form characters of a certain kind. Mm -hmm. Like your your laws, law in society and customs in society. And we could even say in your household, practices and customs in your household help to form, yes, you, but like also your kids. Yeah. But they help you to form within you then the ability to see the the good, the substantive goods that are trying to be formed within you. So it's like law is subordinated to the growth of virtue. It becomes the way of then giving you a shape to your, your life so that then not only is the external principle the thing that's kind of driving driving things, but that principle has become internalized. Grace is like this too. It's like grace is like the, the kind of limit point here. Grace is the external gift that is meant to, however, be the internal enabling you to love with God's love. So, you know, the, all the various teachings of the commandments are meant, you know, by by the various means of the church's sort of teaching role, be it through the tradition itself or as it's reflected in the writings of spiritual authors or the, the, magi the magisterium's own definitive sorts of teachings, are meant to form a certain kind of character. But it's the forming of a certain kind of character that then can live the, the real freedom of the children of God, which is not a freedom from the law, but rather a freedom to love within that that framework, to, to, to live that life, you know, that really is kind of like just pours forth in good acts. So it's like 
why do we, you know, if we like limited our idea of asceticism to just, okay, as long as I basically, even if I followed all the like more major fastings, like all the more major fasting uh, hol- uh, r- rules during the year, but then as soon as you're outside of that, you never act temperately, right? So you're, you're self-indulgent <laughs> in all kinds of in different ways. Like, well, what's the purpose of it? You know, yeah. rather yeah. it's like, so we try to keep at my house a, a, a decent little bar because it's really nice if you have guests who don't, who don't like have this sort of thing, you like can plan. You're like, Hey, here are two cocktails that you're going to love. And you know, you're Christ visiting me and I want to try and treat you to that, you know, and it's not a chance for us to booze it up every day. It's, you know, it it becomes a way of, of using a detachment from it precisely by not boozing it up every day. Cause otherwise it's going to be a bunch of like, I don't know, whatever Jack Daniels and like whatever's a garbage vodka. You know what I mean? It's just going to be that otherwise. Um, so, you know, uh, but you have to have the deta- that detachment is not merely for the sake of following those rules, but those rules are to teach us to be detached from our passions, to give us the practice to be detached from those passions, because we got to do it, right? And by doing it, we form in ourselves the character so that then we can, in a sense, I mean, it, it, the analogy limps, but we can creatively do the good. There are all kinds of ways, if you're actually, like, detached from, like, pleasures or honors or whatever, that you can then, like, expand your heart. And that's the purpose of virtue. Oh, I love that. To expand one's heart. The Father Survey Pinkers talks about the spontaneous and creative good, right? Like that's what it like to live this life. And it's funny because when you read the lives of the saints or, um, you know, being in, you know, from Franciscan with a charismatic background, right? You hear these stories of people who gave their lives over to the Holy Spirit. It gave him permission to do whatever he wants. And they end up doing wild and crazy things where radical conversions happen in the darkest of places. You know, uh, the prison ministry that I go to, like when you start giving God permission to work and you are shot, you're disposing yourself, right? Worthily, right? You're the sacraments, all this stuff. You're drinking it all in. And then when God manifests his grace and his power through you, it becomes like this crazy, unexplainable, memorable, you know, event. And I feel like as Catholics, to a certain point, we don't, we're not hearing these stories often enough to let us know of what a deified life should look like. All of life should have at least the opportunity for that, right? There's a sense in which you said you're disposing yourself for him to act, but it really is not like the special thing of mystics. It's not the special thing merely of prison ministers. It should be the 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 daily fare of all of your actions. Mm. It should be the day like your whole life should be a chance for a kind of experience of a kind of little transfiguration in all sorts of weird ways in in your actions by others, by your family. It's um you know by the people you meet they should see Christ just like as the apostles see on Tabor right when Peter and John see they see um and Peter James and John see you know, the full divinity of Christ. Well, it's not going to be quite that because we, we don't have the hypostatic union, but people should really like see Christ in your, a- in your actions. And I know that sounds hokey, except if you understand that's actually the soul of moral, moral theology, that's the meaning of the virtues then. Yeah. All the various, all the various virtues, be they generosity, be they, yeah, sexual morality. Um, you know, cause even there, it's like the beauty of, so when our kids are older, because we were following the church's teaching, you know, it's like, and God be praised uh, uh, on 
the church's sexual teaching, you know, for instance, you know, we know exactly what feast day our kids were born on. Our second daughter in that case was since first had to go to Joseph. The second was named after the day of conception because you even see in your, your intimate sexual life with your spouse, you know, your cooperation as parents with God, you know, attempting to, to live a chase spirit, a chase sexuality, but not merely to like bottle up chastity and not be unchaste, right? Yeah. But it's, you see this as a way of, yes, sharing that intimacy, but also doing it as part of God's plan, making you the providential caretakers of this, this new soul who is really his. Um, I think people are so afraid of that. I think we're so afraid of that. I, I knew a, a, a person at Franciscan who refused to do the St. Louis de Montfort consecration because he used the word slaves of Mary. And I was talking with, I'm no one's slave. And I remember saying, well, you know, here in Romans, it talks about you were slaves to sin and now you're slaves to righteousness. And she, like now for whatever reason, that was a capital T trigger word for this person. And she was like, I am no one's slave. And so she couldn't bring it. But like that, that notion of like, I am God's. I am God's like in, in the middle of whatever I'm doing, this is God's gift to me to be here, this moment, this place, this grace, whatever it is that I'm doing. Like, how do I, how, how do I practically transfigure this moment? How do I let it shine forth with the glory of God? How do I not let the, the old Adam in me muck it up as it were? So what, what would you say to people to, who want to live this Christological life today? That's a huge question. Can you? <laughs> I mean, well, in terms of like practical, because we hear people say all the time, like you said, you know, everyone should encounter you should be encountering Christ. When they see you, they should see, you know, but and it's funny, like in all the documents of the church on evangelization, right, the missionary, you know, um, Redemptoris Missio and all, all the different documents that have come out, they all start with the same thing, which is you can't evangelize without lived witness, right? But the, the spiritual component of that within my own life, it's not just I'm living the, I'm doing the Christian things, right? But like that, that, that transfiguration has already occurred within me. So I just had a guy the other day in my RCIA class for Protestants becoming Catholic, it's called inclusion. And the guy said to me, when did you know that this wasn't just a bunch of like things that you're like, that God, that Jesus Christ really did these things. Like, when did this, when did the catechism become real for you? And I, I think like, yeah, that's a good question. Because I don't think there was a time when I'm like, pinpoint. But uh, yeah, like, how, how do I help someone experience the transfiguration in their own daily? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I, the way I'm presenting it is you doing it. So, I mean, first of all, I, it's like, whenever you're interacting, this, Think okay, so think about your interactions with with others just every day. So this is kind of like very practical in your action. Like every, when you're doing your examination of conscience at the end of the day, ask yourself, okay, that's all interactions with others are all justice relationships. Sort of if you, you don't realize it, that's very much what the logic is, because it's what it, what do I owe to others? Can I say that in every one of those cases, something like the generosity of mercy, not necessarily as forgiving everyone, but the kind of overabundance that that 
marks God's own abundance because he calls us out of calls us out of nothingness and then recalls us out of nothingness after our sinning in a sense not absolute nothingness but you know right. what I mean I mean yeah. he calls us back to nothingness of sin did all of my interactions today do they have this mark of mercy in them because that should be the mark of me living Christian justice and so like your examination examination is very good to to think you know to really meditate on what were the deeds that I did today um know or you know in a spirit of generosity you know i mean you know to to think because once again that kind of givingness of the good uh like you know bonum diffusum sui the good diffuses itself it spills over that's like why god kind of by he's so good that he just wants to communicate his own goodness to to us and to, to all of creation um how was that practically being lived like just in you know, not necessarily the money even that I gave to people, but is there gener- is there, was I actually generous? Like, is there a way I could say that about my actions? And if not, yeah. why not? Because it should be there, right? So what you're doing is you're trying to actually convict yourself of maybe sins of omission here in a very, pract- in a very practical way. Like, it could just be the time I wasn't willing to give to someone because I was rushing through, you know, the post office or something. And, you know, I mean, you've, you've had this, I mean, sometimes you got to rush, right? But sometimes, you know, you just rudely, rudely avoid someone who's like, you know, lonely old person who talks too much, you know, or something, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you can sacrifice a little bit of your time pretty often. Um, I mean, it's, yes, it's hard. We don't need to be scrupulous, right? We have to realize that like, you know, if we've got our kids and we have to go somewhere, I mean, you know, but also too, we can ask, we also deceive ourselves wherever we deceived ourselves there. Um, yeah. Or, you know, we can ask ourselves about the same thing with regard to, you know, f- food and drink as well, though. I mean, the church does have, a, you know, teachings on on fasting. And it's, you know, once again, work with your spiritual director because this is like the kind of place where the scrupulous can become overly zealous. But, you know, I like good beer, you know. But, you know, I try to have periods, like even if it's, you know, in the middle of the year, we're like, you know what, we're just going to have like regular old pills during the house and that's it. Because you know you shouldn't be attacked. You shouldn't be attacked <laughs> to to always having the good good smell of flavors. That's can, awesome. So you can come up with this in different ways, like in yeah. your life, and ask ask where this is at. And the church mercifully gives us practices, though, where during the seasons when she encou- encourages, you know, uh, fasting, uh, almsgiving, and prayer. Right? Because that's the other thing too. Prayer. Talk about prayer is actually an act of justice. Turning your heart to God so that you may ask for Him. And, you know, also primarily the asking, because actually meditating on meditating and speaking with God in prayer and that sense of intimacy is actually an act of faith and an act of hope and an act of charity. But prayer in that sense of asking from God that which he can alone give, which is above all, actually, the gift of his grace. Like, that's the primary thing we pray for. Do we really do that? Like, really? And is it does it suffuse our day? And what practices do we have in our household for doing that? You know, and so in my household, that's not daily rosary. I'm sorry. It's just not because we're Eastern Christians and that's just not part of our spiritual life. Right. So but I have like my little things I do with my kids where they bring their icon downstairs and, you know, we we pray in front of the icon when when we put it on the stand in the morning. And then, you know, what else do we do throughout the day? Um, You know, our own life and for our household. So these are the kind of things that that become practices of Mm -hmm. the virtues. Yeah. Does your does your wife secretly pray the rosary in Latin when you guys aren't around? Does she uh, run yeah. off of it? <laughs> Roman Catholic. I don't know. I don't know if she's doing it in secret. I I, I don't know. Um, you know she's like, as a Roman Catholic, she she's like she was like I was as a Roman Catholic, though far more devoted to like the liturgy of the hours. 
mm. is is her spirituality. There's just sort of a monastic side to, to both of us, which is probably why we we got yeah. got on so well. That's um, awesome. That's so awesome. It's so beautiful. I, I hated the liturgy of the hours for so long. Not that not literally hated, but like I'm I'm there's so many like people always joke now about it, but it's like you lost me at the ribbons. I'll wait till there's an app. And now there's the iBrievery app and I hate it because it's not it doesn't, it doesn't go well. The the Halo app is fine, but uh I don't always need chill lo-fi music in the background while I'm doing it. So I, I've gotten along with it and uh my parochial vicar, he's a really good friend of mine, and he's always encouraging me to do it. And then I started, you know, buckling down and from January, I've been doing, you know, more or less morning and evening prayer and trying to do that more. And then we've started incorporating the the antiphons in our masses, in our Sunday masses, trying to recover that. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is, and if I can use this phrase, a seamless garment from the liturgy of the hours straight into the liturgy of the mass. Like, and you, it, it feels, it feels like these things belong together now. In a, in a, you know, and I'm just stupid, you know, trying to get this sense of the universal church into my, into my blood. And once you start doing it, you're like, oh my goodness, oh, this is all connected. Okay. I see this. I mean, I had one of my biggest conversion moments reading the little, the little italicized sentence underneath one of the Psalm headings, which oh, was, uh, yeah, it was for Psalm 95, the gateway to heaven is the, the humanity that Christ assumed. And I just sat there thinking about that, and I'm like, oh. That's a beautiful line about the sacred humanity of Christ. Who was that? St. Irenaeus, I think. Irenaeus. Yeah, that sounds, yeah. That's a beautiful right? line. So true. Yeah. Someone, a priest told me that uh, he said uh, an Orthodox, uh, I want to say Russian Orthodox monk was dying, and his you know disciples community gathered around him, and they said, what is the lesson of your life, your, your last, you know, kind of last lecture. Right. And he said, I have learned to climb down 10,000 ladders to kiss the dust of my own humanity. And you can interpret that in weird ways, but when you interpret that in a Christian way, you're like, okay, number one, I don't entirely get what that means. I think I need to be at a higher level of mysticism. I'm at, I'm at a, I'm at a level negative two. I need to be up like plus 10, but like there was something that resonated with me when I heard that, because I was like, because this is the humanity that Christ assumed. He didn't put it on like a garment, throw it off, and now he's back in the Godhead without his human nature. Like, he elevated it. And to lose sight of that is to lose sight of the Christian thing. Then I'm just doing practices. You now it's like, there's there's another ladder of which I can go humbler and humbler and kiss that dust, uh, the the hummus, right, of, of my humanity. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have a question. I just wanted to sound very, very fancy. Oh, yeah, no. I just I, wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's there a couple of different ways one can go there. Because we were on the part with the liturgy, there was the, the issue. And then we, we yeah. got into these Christological truths. Because it's like, it's like, and that's the real mystery there is that we taught, we kiss the dust of the humanity, which Christ assumed, but we kiss its dust. Because we, that's the sort of emptying of, it's the emptying of our will, not so that we're like a vacuole. But it's really the the enabling of of the real light that we were created to yeah. participate in, to break in the likeness to have in it, but recognizing we are dust, but he comes and dwells in our humanity in a profoundly real way that completely transforms us is yeah. ontologically in our being and hence in our activity, because from our being flows our activity. Um 
and that's just all the profound grounding of the life of Christians and the life of of you know Christ in the end. I love so, it. Yeah. I love it. All right, folks, we're going to be right back after these quick messages from Ascension Press. Do us a favor and email us at EKSB at AscensionPress.com. We are America's number one crowdsourced podcast on evangelization because I don't even think that's a thing. I just made that up right now. So email us at AscensionPress.com and uh, EKSB at Ascension Press. We'll field your questions upcoming in an episode uh so that we can kind of break this down in a practical way. When we come back, I got one last question for Dr. Matthew and uh, we'll wrap up the show. 2000 years ago, Jesus Christ chose corrupt, broken, imperfect, sinful men to be the foundation of his church. And because these broken, imperfect men chose to remain in relationship with Jesus, they became saints, and they were used by Jesus to transform hearts and minds 2,000 years later. I invite you to check out my book, Broken and Blessed, where you'll find practical tools to overcome habitual sin, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and to walk with an imperfect church toward a perfect God who is calling all of us to perfection over time. To order the paperback book or audiobook, Broken and Blessed, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Every shall bow. Thank you for the fine words from Ascension. We love Ascension always and forever uh, because they send us checks once a month. And no, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whenever Dave was asking the question, like, why did you write this book? I was like, money. It's only for the money. Just kidding. We're just kidding. Um, but being with Ascension people who understand, I do want to emphasize the book Made by God, Made for God, um, the program Catholic Morality Explained, offered by Ascension Press. It is uh, an excellent resource to get into the hands of every ordinary Catholic. There is no jargony language that's going to push people who maybe have never read, like I go off on Father Survey, Pink Cares. You don't have to have a working knowledge of Thomistic moral theology. You have to love Jesus. And when you love Jesus, you will see reflected in every chapter, not just the love of Christ, but the love of Christ that desires to transform your heart in a very real way, right? So um, don't be intimidated, especially if you have never picked up a book on Christian morality before in any sort of systematic way. This is an excellent resource to get you into this stuff, because as we are living the Catholic life, we can't do, we have to have our intellects formed from the gospel. We have to have our moral choices formed in the gospel. This is what preaching the kerygma, this is its full fruit, is the way we live our lives. But today, we live in a giant um, crucible that is post-Christian, uh, in some cases anti-Christian. I remember in the 1990s when I was in high school, if you lived the church's sexual ethic, you were weird but admirable. Now you're a bigot. Right. I, I remember being in the in, in 1999, hanging out in a parking lot with a bunch of uh, buddies. We were working at a at a um, concert venue and we had to block off the parking and we were like parking <laughs> security. It's pretty awful for a bunch of high school students to do that. But we were talking and, you know, I was sharing with them like, oh, so you don't have sex with your girlfriend? I'm like, no, like we you know save sex. Marriage. And they're like, dude, that's cool. Stupid, but cool. Like there was like a respect like that's like hardcore, bro. 
Um, but now it's it's an, an actual evil. It's a bigoted thing. It's a whole collection of things. So it is difficult to navigate this world. I got friends that email me all the time like, my company is imposing a policy that we have to use our pronouns in our emails. What do I do there? How do we – of living the Christian life, we can't just give one rule that suffice – like you must never use pronouns because you're buying into the ideology. What virtue do we turn to to navigate all of the ups and downs of this post-Christian world? Because you got to be wise as serpents, serpents and innocent as doves here. So – Two, but I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on one of them. One that we haven't talked about a ton is the virtue of prudence. Mm. Prudence is a beautiful virtue to meditate on because moral reasoning involves all kinds of like all kinds of character to have the tact or the flair or you know the moral eye to see what you have to do and discern in your circumstances how to live virtuously. So I really want to emphasize prudence just because that's really important. But I think that there's, you know, uh, it's one of the chapters, it's the 24th chapter in the book uh, on courage. I, I think that courage has a very special place right now for Christians. Now, that can sound like, right, I, I've taught enough, like even like when I used to teach at Mount St. Mary's as an adjunct back when I was still finishing my doctorate, I remember teaching undergrads about you know, just normal eth you know, ethics, philosophical ethics. And when you talk about courage, everybody thinks of courage as like, you know, yeah, I'm going to stand up and battle. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, they yeah. even describe it as what even the philosophers would call rashness, right? Mm. So that it would be, you know, the courageous person is so Chesterton has this wonderful line. Like the courageous person knows that there's something fearful, but he's going to stand up against it. It doesn't mean he's without fear. He's aware of the fact there's something to be feared, something that requires you to stand up to it. Right. But it's not just like ignorant of it, like throwing it to the wind and just running into yeah. battle with a kind of like, you know, foolhardiness, you know, like Scottish, yeah, Scottish foolhardiness, like in, in you know, Braveheart, which is, you know, historically inaccurate. But you sort of get, you know, the sort of Gaelic over the topness. Right. Uh, rashness is not courage. Courage is 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 knowing how to suffer wrongs enough so that you don't just overreact and, and blow up the whole order of your relationships, above all your relationship with God. So that can take different views, right? So on the one hand, that can take the, you can't, there are times where you can't give in to these various reigning ideologies, right? Yeah. Like where you really cannot affirm things like going on, you know, let's just even broach it directly in, in the context of all the stuff with LGBT phenomena in our culture. However, as any of us know who have relatives, like, you know, who, who identify a certain way in, in regard to these to sexuality, we're not supposed to, like, at every single time we get together with them, just launch into them about why this is, you know, wrong. It's a real dance that it takes to learn how to, to, to not rush in, but then also be ready in the way that is balanced with your relationship to say you say things in just the right way. I mean, and it takes a real tact. So you need the character that gets you basically tuned, like a fine-tuned instrument. This is where it's like courage and prudence to know yeah. just how to not in the in your frustration at feeling like a weirdo all the time, which is something <laughs> I think we increasingly feel like when you look yeah. at the, the culture in, in media and in what people talk about. Without, however, letting that spill over into a kind of reckless, reckless anger. And this could be the same thing, though. You know, it's for dealing with family, right? My wife and I joke all the time. So we're on our own. And this is the kind of thing my poor 
pastor, the kind of things I confess. I'm like, we're academic. Well, it's like we both have PhDs. And so like we're, we talk a lot, right? Yeah. It's like a very verbal household. So like there's a lot of sins that happen in, in like the detraction or complaining character, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever we want to put the category in. But let's think about like when we go to like be with family and you're frustrated that you feel like the religious weirdos and like everyone thinks you're the religious weirdos who are putting, you know, going to liturgy, this liturgy first, you know, and so it makes like the time that everyone wants to do Easter weird or difficult or whatever. Like, why can't you just, you know, go somewhere else to church or something like that? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, courage teaches us to like, OK, to to see that because that, that's a, it's a kind of small, very small suffering. Um, and it's a suffering that, you know, we should be joyous like the apostles were, right? But you see your, you, you see the wrong of, of this society having malformed so many people in our, in our lives. I mean, ourselves too, but like there are people who really are foreign to the idea of living in the, in the church and they're amid our family. And so it like justly calls for us to react to it. And yet we have to be able to suffer that with an equanimity so that we don't just actually become the, the real religious bigots and zealots that they that maybe they think we are or maybe not. Because, you know, by reacting, we create the carrot. We create this the situation in which yeah. they understand it. They they, they kind of slot it in the you do you category. But they're not thinking of as re, as religious weirdos. But we feel like they are. Right. Right. Um, or like you're in your, your you know kid's school. And like, let's just keep this, if, if I may, and you can cut me off here. So let's set aside the, all the problems of the public schools, right? Um, and you're at a Catholic school. And generally good, but, you know, it's very easy for things to start getting flabby. And like, yeah. if, if schools want to give in to status, the, the pollution of status anxiety on the parts of Catholics has really created like the downfall of the universities in the Catholic world here in America, but also secondary schools. And if you're a parent at a Catholic school, you know what? You can't be the crank who's always worked up. But guess what? Sometimes you have to be ready to, to suffer the the indignity of like how you're going to be treated by the administration when you push for something that you know that you can support. You've got enough support from fellow parents in that to try and change some bad policy that you see going against the church's teaching or tending that way or loosening, you know, uh, the, the morals of the classroom or something. Yeah. Same thing with like it's like same thing with your your family. It's like, you know, trying to strike that nice and it's not like a it's not like the porridge, right? Like uh Goldilocks, right? It's not too hot, not too cold, just right. No, no. It's a, like a big peak of Mount Everest is what it's like trying to hit the virtuous middle, you know, between being cowardly and rash. How do you stand up against the culture in a way that is Christ conformed to your children without letting them be sucked in? To the turbulence of the culture without the kind of reactiveness that's going to then basically set them up to want to go to it as soon as they get out of your household. Yeah, and um, that's so true. It's you know, so I, I, like maybe it's a defect of our love where there are, we're just done navigating. You know, we don't want to try to prudentially steer the boat around troubled waters or through. And we're, we're just fine with blast and everyone scorched earth. I'm going to throw doctrine at your face, you know, all this stuff there like a belligerence versus a, um, you know, I'm just going to ride low and pretend like none of this stuff bothers me. You know, like you see that whether you're at Thanksgiving dinner or at a board meeting for your school board, like you, there's these tensions that are so huge. And I think now Catholics are waking up, Christians are waking up, conservative, I don't know, whatever. But, like, our 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 culture has gone so rapidly from a, a general conservative kind of 
society into a rapidly progressive society that it used to just be like, if you keep your head low, the status quo was good enough that you could provide correction. But now it's like the status quo isn't good enough anymore. The the status quo is like hostile, you know, antithetical. And it's like, at some point, at some point, my resistance has to be more than a correcting comment off to the side to my kids or whatever. It has to be, all right, today's the day when I get crucified and my crucifixion is going to look like all of my friends abandoning me because I'm taking the unpopular stand that this textbook ought not to be introduced or this, um, you know, these things happening at the school ought not to happen or whatever it might be. And it, it is amazing how people don't want that. They want the, they want the rash. Cause I, I, I should say like that, that's the what the fallen is. You know, cause yeah, and it is, it's, it's the effects of the fallen. Cause, and I'm, I'm a choleric by temperament. So I'm going to mm. tend toward rashness because mm. the rash person is just denouncing all the time, but you're, it's like, it's like someone who's denouncing stuff they can't change. Right. Yeah. So you're in the midst of that kind of rash overreaction to it all. And then when the day comes for the rubber to hit the road, there's the practical issue. Right. But there's also probably the, you know, the the rash person may not be listened to. So that's the one thing I was trying to say. Like people won't listen to you because you've been heckling. But the other side is, you know, you may not do anything because you've gotten to such a place where you're like, you know what? World's so messed up, they're not going to do anything anyways. Because that's the funny thing about vice is that all of a sudden you technically become kind of cowardly, even though you're rash because you're not standing up when you should. So you got to inculcate, you got to inculcate this, this ability to, to, to suffer in a truly virtuous way the the state of a post-christian world um yeah. and that means like a real ability to suffer sometimes like loss of many things uh friendships and relationships but not merely at like just any provocation but precisely when it's needed precisely because you avoid it on the other hand a kind of like recklessness yeah. caution is another virtue that like saint thomas places it among the virtues we need for prudence whenever we're doing the act it comes and helps our self-command, he says, when we're, we're doing the act. And caution is not merely like scrupulous people being like, well, okay, I'm going to sin if I do that. I'm going to sin if I do that. It's, I mean, it's, there's a truth that's in there. Yeah. But it's, I learn to see evils as I'm acting and how to miss them. But there are evils on all sorts of sides of how to, to mess things up. Like messing up a relationship for a dumb reason. Like there's a time to be firm with relatives. But messing up a relationship with someone who maybe is like the only rel – like, you're, like they're, they're not even connected much with other parts of the family. And like they still are connected to you. And you all of a sudden decide to inveigh against them and their life choices. You know, you got to find a tact for how to do it. I mean you have to learn yeah. – you need all the virtues, right? You got to have a little bit of affability because having a little bit of affability and joking is like the medium for being able to actually like remind people where you stand because like a joke just well placed in the right relationship can prevent this. So you avoid the evil of of just get along to go along, right? But then you also avoid, you know, you also avoid the, the evil of just inveighing against them. So, I mean, I just think that kind of this mixture of caution and prudent, prudence as a whole – and courage has a real important place because we have to learn how to stand up as Christians in a post-Christian world. But it's a standing up that's a crucified standing up, yeah. right? It's not merely the puritanical standing up. So, yeah.
Yeah, that's awesome. So once again, the book is called Made by God, Made for God, Catholic Morality Explained. If there is a, There are so many crises in the church, but one of them, I think, is so deeply rooted in a non-Christological vision of what it means to be good. And we need to reground it in, in Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Trinity, in God's love for us, because God is love. And we miss that. We miss the gospel. And we're just, we're all a bunch of Pelagians, right? And so... Uh, thank you so much for your time on the show. But more importantly, thank you for writing this book. Uh, again, people, this is a non-jargony uh, view of the Catholic moral life. We have to drink this down if we're going to be good evangelizers. It's not just about the way we live our lives, but what we're calling people into. What we're calling people into is nothing less than the transfiguration into Christ, right? That's what we want. So thank you, Dr. Matthew. Uh, you've been awesome guest having to deal with me for like two hours and a, and a, and a donut break. I mean, not a donut break, a, uh, a cauliflower break. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to? Are you living on the socials? Do you have a website? Where can people oh, find well, you? Oh, yeah, of course. I you know, do my, my plug, as I've been told by my my, my operas, uh, catholicmorality.com slash, or uh, yeah, ascensionpress.com, ascensionpress.com slash catholicmorality. You can actually find my work, but it's careful. Don't get freaked out by the academic stuff. Uh, philosophicalcatholic.com, mm. philosophicalcatholic.com. You'll find my various online appearances, the various books that I've done, um, and yes, my academic writing as well. So there's a mixture of things here that's more academic, less academic, but philosophicalcatholic.com. Yeah, awesome. And uh, again, if people want to sit down and watch a great interview with you, uh, Matt Frad had you on Pints with Aquinas, and it was really great just letting you two uh, talk through a lot of this stuff too. So thank you for your multiple hours uh, today. You're very generous with us. I know you're a busy man, and we're coming up now. Uh, we've just gone through the beautiful season of Easter, or uh, just finished Lent, and now this show is airing on uh, during the octave of Easter. So we got to live that resurrected life, folks. God bless.